Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Ellie Jacobs, joined today by Frank Spring. Maggie Moore is on the DL, and uh, we hope to see her again next week. Hello, Frank. Good morning, Ellie. Uh, and good morning and hello uh, to our many, many listeners. Uh, many people are saying how much they enjoy this podcast. Uh, you hear it more and more. You really do hear it, Ellie, how much people love Taking Ship. Uh, and we remind all of you uh, that your praise sustains us and your hatred nourishes us. Uh, so please give us feedback on our various media and especially subscribe to us on your uh, various podcast media, uh, iTunes or wherever else you're, you're listening to this thing. Uh, and by all means, please subscribe to us and tweet at us frequently on Twitter. Uh, on all of those things, we are uh, Taking Ship with a P as in prevaricate. That's a that's a ten dollar word. Like it. We're stepping lively here this Sunday morning. Yeah. All right. So I figure because we have to. Um, I think I think we have to. It's uh, in the bylaws. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't check what the morons at Chapo Trap House or the dickheads at Hot Save America were doing this week, but I'm assuming <laughs> I'm assuming they were talking about this as well. So let us discuss the clown car pileup of the Democratic debates that took place over two nights because the DNC has no concept of how to prevent people who should never be running for president to run for president. Um, and the, and the metrics that they use to try to prevent more people from being on the stage. I don't know that it really did anything to keep anybody out other than Steve Bullock and Seth Moulton. If the whole plan was, if the idea was we want only extremely credible people on this stage, then I think we can say that the thing needs to be taken back to formula. If that was their idea, it, it's it's a it's a pretty dismal failure. And yeah, we do have to talk about the debate. It's, yeah. So I'll, I mean, it's, I'll it's in the it. fucking bylaws. Like, yeah, I'll preface it by saying I did not watch either night. Uh, that was by choice. Um, I made a good choice and watched Chernobyl instead. Hell yeah! Uh, everybody should watch that. Um, yes, you should. It's very good. And honestly, we'll tell you as much about institutional politics. Oh yeah. Today as watching more, it'll tell you more about institutional politics than, uh, you know, cur- currently and especially in its time period, uh, as than the Democratic debates for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I did make calls before both, um, both debates and I think I played out pretty, pretty well on both in terms of my predictions, but I don't think that makes me a soothsayer. I think it just makes somebody who, you know, pays mild attention and was willing to go out on really no limb at all. Um, it's true, I think, but you, I think but both you, nights were pretty predictable. But let's but let us re, but let us reward your your taking the chalk bets uh, because sometimes people don't take the chalk bets. Yeah, and there were people who didn't. Uh, so what did, what were your predictions and 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 how did they pan out? I remember that you predicted that. Uh, <clears throat> I remember that you predicted that Castro would have a pretty good night, and he did. Uh, and that was a, that was a good solid prediction, and it, it surely came to pass. He got a little bit of a bump, uh, and in my view, deservedly so. Yeah, uh, you know, I said Warren would have a good night. Um, Booker and kind of everybody else would would embarrass themselves, and um, Castro would uh, would have a little bit of a breakout. Um, all of which I suggested at the time, and I, I'm going to try to scroll back through our chats and see if I can find it, but I don't think it's going to happen quick enough. Um, yeah. And then the next night, I said uh, Biden would be uh, fine, 
Um, Sanders would make an ass out of himself. Uh, Kamala and Pete would perform as expected. Um, and by that, I meant they would both do well. Uh, and I said, Gillibrand um, would be the big um, embarrassment of herself um, during the second night's debate. So let's pick up on that last one. Uh, we didn't talk about this in the, you know, before we recorded, but I would like to know, uh, how, would you say that Gillibrand was an embarrassment, was, was an embarrassment or did, or at least did poorly? I think she did. I think she did not well. Um, I had higher expectations. Uh, I had, I don't think she should be running for president. Um, I think she's a competent senator of the great state of New York. I have voted for her. Um, I want to bet when um, David Patterson picked her to replace Hillary Clinton in 2008. Um, I don't think she has any business running for president. Um, but I thought that a debate stage like that, she had an advantage. She had a, there was a good possibility for her to break out or at least have a couple good points. Oh, one other thing I said was that Beto would suck. Um, you did make that prediction and lo, it came to pass. Yeah, but that's not surprising because I've been saying that a well-funded armadillo would be a better politician than Beto O'Rourke is. Um, Do you so have one? That's, that's my take on Gillibrand. Wait, hang on. No, I really want to get back on this well-funded armadillo thing. Do you have an armadillo and can we create a pack for it? Because honestly, I would love to run an armadillo for something. I mean, no one's running for Texas Senate. Asked can, and answered. We can, really, we, can really, we can run my experiment. We can run it. An, an armadillo. Yeah. <laughs> not any. Like, we're not going to call it, like, Dave the Armadillo. We're just going to be an armadillo. Yeah, an armadillo. Yeah, yeah. army. 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 Yeah. No, no, that's too... Spe- <laughs> we don't, we don't want to do... So we don't want to anthropomorphize this thing at all. Right. Like, just an armadillo. Right. And the best part is, is they're so, you know, they, they're ubiquitous throughout Texas. So we don't really have to like move the campaign from one place to the next. Yeah. It'd be the there's always thing. an armadillo there. Absolutely. It'd be the easiest thing. In the world. I mean, we, we thought it was impressive when Beto visited all every county in Texas. Yeah. Holy smokes. We will create an office in every county in Texas staffed by a single armadillo, at least one. In some cases, many. Yeah. There will be just just leprosy as far as the eye can see. Yeah. If we could figure out how to train them, we could get them knocking doors. That would be awesome and terrifying. Yeah. Three armadillos in a trench coat knock on your door. (laughs) 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 They don't really talk. They just kind of like squeak. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And then run away in terror. Yeah. Just like, I guess I'm voting for that guy. A tough tough job requires a tough animal. Yeah. Uh, All right. So that was, that was uh, the knock on Beto. And that was, that was my comment on Gillibrand. I, I I had higher hopes for her on that, on that stage. I just thought that um, given her, personality and her ability to i think generally cut through to cut through clatter reasonably well i, I kind of thought she might do a little bit better that was yeah, her, a lot of her campaign so i we and i've talked about this it's been remarked that the debates at this stage are useful only in as much as they are data points for the continuing trajectory of a candidacy right so right. you know to the extent that they reveal how a candidate is approaching the entire race the debates are quite useful to the extent that like what happened on one on a debate now is like a, an individual incident from a debate at this stage of the game is going to affect, you know, the elect, you know, the primary election several months from now, or certainly general election, you know, more than a year away. Eh, not, not, not quite so much. Uh, and your point about Gillibrand is really good because one of the critiques of her race, one of the, of her campaign, one of the, one of the, the many salient ones, I think, is that she does deliberately seem to be running to fade into the background, right? Like there's not, 
she is clearly pulling her punches and it has been much remarked upon in the coverage of her that when she has the opportunity to make, to make a strong statement, um, she's sort of, or to, you know, to, to do something that would be attention getting or otherwise inflammatory, the kind of stuff you need to, if you're trying to break out of the middle of a pack, um, she has deliberately declined to do so. There's a sense that she's holding her fire and it's like for when, um, and, and that yeah. I think was pretty much the case, uh, during the debate. Yeah. Um, so those were kind of my observations from, from afar and, and we're, we're going to get into this a little bit deeper, but those are my observations going in, um, and then kind of how they, how they played out. But, um, I would, you know, one thing I would just remind everybody to keep in mind, um, uh, you know, as you mentioned that er, the, the primaries, uh, debates from this early on are going to have next to no impact in Iowa eight months from now, um, or New Hampshire or anywhere else. But, you know, the DNC fumbled this. It should never have turned out to be like this. They took, they took some lessons from the clown car pileup that the Republican primaries were in 2016, but not enough of the right ones. And they didn't adjust appropriately. Um, I don't think, I think, you know, doing it on two nights and doing it by lottery was mildly clever as opposed to doing like, you know, a varsity and a JV debate, even though it sort of ended up being that anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the DNC once again has just managed to figure something out and fuck it up to a point that it's, this is, this will continue to hurt us, I think, as a party. Yeah, I mean, it's, there, is, there is way too much noise here. Uh, and, and, there's, and that's kind of inevitable if you've got 24 candidates, of whom, what, 22 actually took the stage or 20? Yeah. Uh, it was a 20 in the end was the, was 20, the number yeah. of candidates. Yeah. So it's, and, and it's funny when you talk about the, like the not dividing in diversity in JV. I, it's, I'm glad you said that because I was sort of reminded irresistibly in the first night's debate that Elizabeth Warren was like that high school junior who plays on varsity and has been for a while, but it's or like high school sophomore who still who plays on varsity and has been mm-hmm. for a while. Like is just that like varsity caliber athlete yeah. is still eligible for JV and periodically the JV team picks them up so they can beat the holy hell out of someone else. Uh, you know, to some poor unsuspecting bunch of like freshmen and sophomores. Like she definitely like had the look of someone who was just wildly outclassing everyone around her Yeah, um, on the, on the first night. And that's not to be surprised, right? She's incredibly capable, you know, very bright, very persuasive, has a strong theory of the case. Yeah, uh, and is running a good race. Like you would expect that from her. What really disappointed me was not was to not have Sanders and Warren on the stage together. Um, and this is yeah. one of my this is one of my big takeaways as we as we you know dive into this a little deeper. Um, I don't understand why there wasn't more of a concerted attack at Bernie Sanders. Like let's just get rid of him. All he, all his poll numbers have only gone down since he nominated since he um, endorsed Hillary in twenty sixteen. Um, he's, that may be why there wasn't a concerted attack on him. He's an old carnival barker who has no new message. Um, all of his messages that were of any value have been either picked up by other people or adjusted by other people or presented much better by other people, <clears throat> Elizabeth Warren, um, to the point that I don't understand why there wasn't some sort of pileup of, hey, Byrne, how can we never, how can we, if, if you're on the stage, how come you're not a Democrat? Or why didn't a moderator ask him now or in 2016 why he's not a member of the Democratic Party? But that, that was like the fact that they kind of just let that they're letting him die a slow death um, is either really smart or really, really dumb. And it's going to lead to a long bleed that's going to hurt people. I think there's the, the, you make a good point that I, I've kind of gone back and forth on whether he should just be left to, to kind of suffocate because I think I mean, he's still raising a lot of money, raised a lot of money after the debate. He still has yeah. a large, like, I mean, the, the guy is by no means out of the race. Right. I but we're in agreement say, that he will not be a factor after New Hampshire. Yeah, I, I, we do. I do get the very strong sense 
that the person who will end up representing the left of the party in the final, as we sort of think about this in terms of like, like a tournament, like there's going to be sort of, you know, three to six, probably four uh, mm-hmm. candidates who are going to maybe five who are going to be left standing at the end that are going to be the really credible ones. Yeah. Uh, and, and the left of the party, uh, you know, sort of our, I think our view and, and a fairly popular one is that Elizabeth Warren is going to represent that part of yeah. the party. And I think that's, that's appropriate. Uh, I mean, Biden, or excuse me, uh, Sanders, and first of all, you were, you were right. He has, there is a sense that he, he's got this core of support that people who still believe in him. He has still been right about a lot of stuff. His critiques are not bad. Uh, but Elizabeth Warren has the same critiques and issues prescriptions that are a lot more tolerable uh, right. and a lot more thoughtful. So I think and she's not and, Larry David yelling at me. Yeah. And, and, st- and there's a huge stylistic difference that I think, uh, that I think redounds to her, to her favor. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't anticipate that she is going to be the leftist candidate. And I suspect that, which in and of itself tells you how far to the right the Democratic Party has gone, because while Warren is a good solid, is, you know, solidly on the left of the Democratic Party, uh, she, by in, in the standards of, say, European politics, would be considered a fairly conservative uh, yeah. uh, Labor Party or, or, de- or Democratic Socialist. Yeah. Um, but that's, but that's going to be her. Everyone else is going to be the right of her. And I guess the idea, but I, I concur with you that, and I don't know if this is a political judgment or if I'm just tired of his ass, <laughs> uh, but I am I am ready for the transition of energy from the left from uh, from Sanders to to Warren, and there will always like and there will be a crew that will just hang on to to Bernie for dear life. Um, yeah, a friend because, of ours you know, is running his campaign in New Hampshire. Yeah, 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 and that's there is a you know there there will always there is going to be that segment of people who when he loses or drops out or whatever are going to do the you know Bernie didn't fail us Bernie was failed. Right, um, and that's and it's the same thing that's happening across the pond with Jeremy Corbyn. Right, it doesn't matter what the outcome of the next general election is, or the one after that, or the one after that. You know, you know, long after he has died, he will be the one who got away because you know the because the, the because the whole electorate betrayed him. Uh, and there's and Bernie's going to have those people until the end. But to the extent that you need a sizable plurality in order to be a credible candidate, those people are going to move over to Warren, and we hope it happens soon. Yeah, and it's interesting that the you know the demagoguery that grows up around leftist candidates, um, you know, look at Lenin and then just go from there. <laughs> that's true, but at least but it, yeah, that's true, but at least Lenin had some constructive ideas. I'm going to defend. Yeah. V, I'm going to get on this podcast. I'm going to publicly defend Vi Lenin. There will be no consequences. I heard uh, you know one of my favorite things is kind of just overhearing people in New York. And I heard, uh, th- I overheard this at a, at a, at a bar the other night about communism. They were having some conversation about socialism, communism, whatever. And the guy said, well, you know, communism seemed like a good idea at the time. It did. It, it honestly, did. Like, it did. And I mean, this, we're going to, this is going to go down. I mean, you and I are both at that, that tipping scale where we're no longer supposed to be socialists, but there's still some ideas there. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it's, and you know, the, I, I do not accept that un that, that abs that just that uninterrupted czarist rule would have by definition been better for Russia than uh, than Bolshevism uh, or what they you know than the or at least in the Leninist version of Bolshevism that they got right like right which is to say like it may not be much of a comparison but this idea that like communism was the worst thing that ever happened to Russia like it went from being a backward agrarian state to an industrial power in a generation. Right. Right. And, you know, and, and then you know, the question, of course, and this is where some of our sprightlier friends on the left tend to come a cropper is, OK, but what about the unending atrocities that accompanied the whole that accompanied the whole show? Uh, and it's, it's pretty hard. To, it's pretty hard to answer for those. Uh, but right. but anyway, so this is but this is what it could say. It seemed like a good idea at the time as compared to czarism. It seemed like a hell of a good idea. Uh, Vladimir Lenin, come on the podcast and fight Ellie. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's do it. <clears throat> All right. So what, what were your, I've been, I've kind of gave my takes. What were your takes? It was So I think the, the, the purpose of the debate is sort of twofold. First, we've got to pick a nominee. The second, I think there is value in, in bringing in, there are worthwhile voices in the Democratic Party that are not going to be our nominees, but are, are people of, uh, you know, are thoughtful, are, you know, people of passion, of good, you know, of good, you know, of good cause and good character, to put it that way, uh, who are good for our politics and could be, from a, from a very practical level, can be good surrogates and are just generally good for the soul of the party. And that's why I was pleased to see Castro have a good night. Uh, and get get some get some attention. He's a he's a smart person. He's a very moral person. He's a very good person. Uh, his politics are are I think useful to the party and a good contribution. And I was glad to see him get some recognition. Uh, one of the re- he has not gotten the attention that he deserves for a couple of reasons. Um, some of it I think is just is structural, and some of it is he's kind of a retiring guy, right? He's had in big stages. I've heard a number of people who have been to debates that have involved him. Uh, have said that you know he kind of has a tendency to fade into the wallpaper a little bit, and that's mm-hmm. true. He and his and his brother are uh, they keep famously close counsel. They're famously introverted. Uh, there have been successful introvert politicians before. President Obama is one of them. Uh, but but he just has had a difficult time putting himself forward in a way that would get a, that would get the attention he deserves. I was glad to see him get it. He's his is a useful voice. Uh, there are a lot of not useful voices that need to get that that I would like to see weeded away from this process. Right. There was a lot of enemies. There's a God, you know, the people, the mayonnaise, they crave it, Ellie. The people, they, they crave really mayonnaise. I don't know if you have heard. Maybe we have discussed this before. <laughs> the mayonnaise, they cry. Uh, there are a couple of things I want to talk about here. I, you know, let's, and then I want to get your opinion on something involving Cory Booker as our, as our resident Cory Booker expert. But before that, let's, let's talk about the thing that's been getting the most headline. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about the big headline. We'll talk about Booker. I'm going uh, to wax John Delaney here in a second. Uh, but let's talk about the big headline, which is, uh, Corey, which is uh, Joe Biden... Uh, got owned by Kamala Harris. Yeah, he's not the first person. He will not be the last. No. Uh, but he got brutally owned by Kamala Harris, with respect to uh, his working with and saying nice things about uh, senators who uh, built their, you know, their campaigns and their reputations on racism and particularly on support for segregation. Uh, she just absolutely waxed him on the subject. Uh, told a, a short, um, but it wasn't really a personal story. It was more of a vignette, but a good one. Uh, and and then and he responded with. What was it? What was his exact line? He kind of apparently he babbled through you know the minute or so that he was allotted, and then at the end he said, "I don't exactly remember the exact order of the words, but it was something of my time is up. I'm sorry, or it was I'm sorry, my time is up." Like I think it was my I'm sorry, the my other time is up. That was the and, most audible part of it, and it's not a good. It's that that's you don't not want to look. create a bumper sticker, as they say. No, no, that's that's a real that's a real bad look. That's the kind of thing that does stick in people's minds. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry, my time is up. That was one thing. Uh, I, so, you know, the sense, your sense, I know we were talking about this, and I concur, is that the individual moment, I don't know, that line might stick, actually. I'm sorry, that, my time that is line, up, that, that line, line might stay stick. stick, but I have, I think that the, uh, I mean, we talk about the left-right divide in the party. I think that there's still a huge generational divide in the party, and old people yeah. still vote, especially in the primaries. So I think Joe Biden has a certain level of inoculation against some of that. Add in the Barack Obama coattails, even if the president doesn't come out and endorse him, there's still a lot of goodwill. And any picture right. of him with the president is with President Obama is, you know, worth its weight in gold. So I, I think Joe Biden is inoculated against a lot of this. But, you know, we were talking earlier and well, you know, take the step back and Harris's campaign played this thing out from whenever I'm assuming they were the ones that dug up these letters and got it to the press. 
two weeks before the debate, a week before the debate. Yeah, these they were timed it perfectly. The letters were exchanges between uh, the exchanges between Biden and uh, Biden and these and, two and the, and the, and the, and the Democratic senators who were also you know leaders in the party at the time and were in charge of the chairmanships. I mean, there's yeah, this is why you pay for Oppo Research Front. Yeah, I mean, there's a real reason why he was in, engaging with these guys because he kind of had to. They were the leaders of his party at the time, but you know. And again, you know, I always, this is a conversation that you and I and Maggie and other people have had for a long time is applying today's standards to things that happened 30, 40 years ago. And that's, that's difficult. I have, I have conceptual issues with that, but um, we're seeing it come to its head with Joe Biden, particularly when you look at, you know, he couldn't overcome that, but, you know, his evolution on gay marriage, everybody, you know, applauded and clapped their hands and were ecstatic about, and no one's ever, you know, talked about or thought about what he did beforehand. But going back to that, the fact that Harris's team teed this up, she knocked, knocked it out of the park um, at the debate. And they, and then they immediately had a social media campaign and t-shirts on the back end of it. Like this was very, very well planned out. It was a good then, show. It was a very well goes done. back to, I think what you were about to raise is that you know, again, we'll, we, we say it a lot on this podcast. We'll continue to say it. God bless Joe Biden. God love him. But he was not prepped. He was not prepared for this debate from what I was reading. Now, again, I didn't watch it, but from what I've read, it just seemed like he didn't show up with an A game. Yeah, it's, that is very, very clear. That's been the, and again, that's been the dominant story. That's our, our analysis on this is not unique. Uh, but, but yeah, he just, he did not, he did not look good. So the end of, and, and the individual, and again, this goes back to the debates individual things that happen in these debates, generally speaking, are going to have a long-term effect. Although again, I'm sorry, my time is up. It's like, God, that might stick around. The more yeah, that's about it. But, but as, but he has not seemed prepped for this line of attack at all. And while, you know, we, we are respectful of, of, of the contributions that Biden has made to the party. Uh, he is running on all of, on all of the, the issue on all of this, particularly we would call social issues, right? Race and gender. Uh, he is running as if he shouldn't have to talk about them. You know, he went to the, uh, the he went to push uh, the uh, the organization of, uh, of African American activists, yeah. Jesse Jackson's organization. And basically, stood in front of them and, and I think said literally, uh, "You all know me. You all know how hard I. You know, no one fought harder for civil rights. You all know me is not like you. Like, you, you know, I shouldn't have to explain myself. Right. Everyone knows how much I've done. Is a horrible line. Yeah, it is a terrible, terrible tack to take as a candidate because the idea is you all know me. You all know I deserve this." Right. Like that's yeah. the like I shouldn't have to explain myself. If you as a candidate take the position that you shouldn't have to explain yourself, you are all but disqualifying yourself from from the office you're seeking. You are always having to explain yourself. You would, always have to engage yeah. with the electorate. I would it say the analogous, matter. the analogous thing is uh, George H.W. Bush in 92. I, I kind of feel that there's a lot of that yeah. going on where, you know, again, it was a generational thing. You had a World War II hero versus somebody who skipped Vietnam. Uh, you know, so there's generational, you know, greatest generation versus baby boomer. Um, same kind of thing. Yeah. And he just wasn't prepared. He didn't want to, he didn't want to have the fight. He felt he was above it. Yeah. Buchanan came at him from the right in New Hampshire, I think. And then Clinton just cleaned his clock because also Perot got involved. I mean, obviously there were other factors, but conceptually I see a lot of the same kind of thing. That's a really, that's a strong parallel. Uh, and, and to the point about the generational politics, uh, it is true that the the voting electorate skews a little bit older. Um, they are a little bit more sympathetic to Biden. He knows this. Uh, but also one of the defining, one of the continuous pieces of data that has been true throughout this race is uh, Democrats are concerned about finding a new generation of leadership 
uh, even older Democrats. I mean, the, yeah. the, the defining feature of this thing is they're looking for, for fresh voices. Uh, Biden is, I mean, he, he left the race pretty clearly vulnerable. And I am, I, you know, my, my own read on this thing is he's just not taking the, he appears not to be taking this shit as seriously as he needs to be. I think it's, you know, I think he went in with a partial expectation, not necessarily an incorrect expectation of uh, no one's going to attack me. I'm Joe Biden. No one's going to get in the dirt on this stage yet. No one's at that point yet. I'm not going to attack anybody else. No one's going to attack me. I think that there was probably a little bit of that as an actual strategy by his team. I think but that's almost that certainly doesn't, true. That doesn't mean why you, that, that doesn't give you an excuse. No, that's right. He did not prep for this. Uh, and, and I think they just didn't see this thing coming. Yeah. I mean, again, they saw it coming because it had been out for a week already, but you know, there's something interesting to be said that it hadn't come out in the, you know, the last 12 years, let alone the last 30 years, but in particular, you know, the race in in 08 and then as a VP candidate, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, all right. So, uh, that that's Joe Biden Our taking on Joe Biden. Uh, you know, we still think he is, uh, a prohibitive favorite, maybe not as quite as prohibitive, but when we talk about our final grouping of this four, five, six candidates, Joe Biden is inevitably in it uh, just by dint of, well, he's Joe Biden technically. Uh, and what amazes me in terms of the generational thing, Biden did incredibly well with, you know, the sunglasses bit and the ice cream bit and the, you know, Uncle Joe and et cetera, et cetera, with young people in particular um, as part of the Obama team. And he just doesn't seem to have that magic right now. Um, but speaking of somebody else who doesn't have magic, um, you wanted to talk about what I call the Booker paradox. Yes, let's talk about the Booker paradox. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think we've you are our resident Cory Booker expert. Uh, Booker had his own tangle with Biden, which we talked about last week. Uh, and, and, and Kamala Harris's tangle with Biden reveals something about her, reveals something about Biden, and it reveals something about Cory Booker. What is that thing? The Cory Booker paradox, as I say it, is you hear about Cory Booker, and when we talked about the Politico comic book homage, at least the first half of it, um, most people get to that stage of, you know, it's a guy, uh, played football at Stanford, was a Rhodes Scholar, went to Yale Law School, you know, was the, you know, the, the president of the Hillel, cha- or the equivalent of the Hillel chapter at Oxford University, um, you know, ran for mayor, lived in the, lived in a, you know, shitty apartment and responded to tweets and was super Corey. And that's all well and good, but up close, uh, you know, when we were younger men, or I think it's a Howard Stern line, um, you know, uh, good from far, far from good. And there's a lot of that to Cory Booker. Um, the, the, the armor gets broken up real quick when you get close to him. Um, and I think we've, we've saw that over the last two weeks in the way that this busing thing played out, the, the way that Biden basically flicked him away, um, effectively flicked him away, and that he had no comeback during, he had no, during the, on the debate stage where he could have and should have been a presence to be uh, listened to and reckoned with, he wasn't. The same way that he has not been throughout the entire campaign, because there's just not a lot there. And, you know, one of my, you know, I have my own, thoughts and, and, and concerns about Cory Booker. And, you know, I keep saying that there's probably a very large area of oppo getting ready to drop on his head. Um, but the fact that like he was so close to Shmuley Boteach for so long um, is really a poor sign of judgment in my mind. Um, and I just, I, I will be very, I will be very glad for Cory Booker to not be in this race anymore. I think he's sucking up energy. I think he's sucking up, you know, a, a lot of uh, 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 
he's sucking up a lot of stuff that should be going to more worthy candidates. And I think he has demonstrated he's not worthy. Can you say a little bit more about just, just for our listeners yeah. who don't know Shmuley Bateach? So Shmuley Bateach is a Chabad Lubavitch rabbi who now runs some cockamamie organization called the Values Network or something like that. Uh, if you get a hard copy of the New York Times, he periodically takes out full page ads to trumpet some, you know, latest right wing attack on, on um, left wing politicians about some comment about Israel. Um, he's a rabbi. He has no, you know, national security training or foreign policy training or political training, although he ran for Congress um, in New Jersey where he got you know, destroyed. He's um, um, like many uh, rabbis, unfortunately, he is a grifter. Um, he subsides by donations from impressive people. And then he makes it all about him. Uh, at a time, he was Michael Jackson's rabbi. Um, he wrote a book called Kosher Sex. That's kind of where he had his breakthrough. He's just not a good dude. He's not somebody to be emulated or thought positively about in any way, shape, or form. I don't see him as a as a as a overall positive for humanity, uh, which is which is painful to say about somebody who is a rabbi and a theoretical leader in my community. But he's not a net positive. And that Cory Booker sucked up to him for so long, and then they had such an abrupt falling out over the Iran deal of all things. Um, I just don't think that speaks very well to Cory Booker's decision making. Yeah, that's a that's a fair critique. There's also a good piece in the uh, in the New Republic recently about Booker and uh, and economic development funds, uh, which yeah. I highly which I highly recommend. I think Alex Perine might have written it. Uh, anyway, so that's there's the Booker paradox, and I think part of the I think that's that's fair for a long time. He's been the you know the next big thing, and and the critique that we have always had for him, I think, is that he's just significantly more sizzle and steak, and that that continues to be true. Yeah. I want to take a second uh, and and wax John Delaney because I mean Delaney may be the most absurd candidate of all. If you're talking about a if we're talking about the the debate, I, I would actually argue that he is marginally more insane than Marianne Williamson actually in terms well, of the fact that he quit his debate. job in Congress and started running a year and a half ago. I think. Yeah. Is, and has been to every county in Iowa at least once yeah. and is polling it maybe negatively. I'm not even. Yeah, it's, it's I, the whole thing has a, I mean, the, the calculus behind his candidacy appears to be, what if Martin O'Malley, but sour and unlikable? Uh, and, you know, and it's, and it's, a, it's, you know, it's a bold strategy and I, you know, I'm bound, I'm bound to respect it, I suppose, but. You know, his whole thing is... Um, he's captain of Team Y, though, I think. He's captain of Team Y, though. That's exactly right. There's no clear... It's, it's not clear. One of our, our friends and listeners, Mike, you know who you are, uh, has, a, has a good line about him. Like, his candidacy is based, on, you know, is based on the theory that America faces a large number of problems, none of which we can solve. <laughs> uh, so it's... I mean, he really is that, he's that kind of, like, all of the, like, the, the instincts of the center, of the sort of center liberalism to but get up and tell us why we can't accomplish things and how we have like, you know, all, you know, the worst elements of triangulation. Well, the Republicans are right. We can't pay ourselves more than we make. Just, just endless, like mealy mouth bullshit yeah. all appears to be represented in this one human being. Uh, and, and he had a line about Medicare for all that Politico picked up on and, and said was going to become a problem for Democrats in the general election. It's actually, let's take a, let's take a step back about the Medicare yeah. for all thing. So the moderators yeah. posed this strangely worded question to both sets um, of 10 candidates. The first night, Warren and de Blasio, again, team Y though, um, raised their hands and they were the only two. And then the second night, um, it was Harris and Sanders raised their hand and then Harris recanted uh, immediately yeah. thereafter saying she didn't quite understand the question properly. But the New York Times did a good 
piece on this yesterday. I think it was yesterday. Kind of, she has been all over the map on this. Yeah. As and, and this is sort of the thing that she has decided to not stick a flag in and she's going to play both sides. It's been, and part of it is that in, in, in her defense, the question was horribly worded. Like yeah. it, was, it was something like, uh, you know, would you support a Medicare for all and give up your, you know, your government and give, you know, and, and, give, and give up. And it was something like would give up, give your, up your private, private insurance. insurance. And she says she interpreted it as her personally versus her which as the leader the, of a. Yeah, which yeah. is what the question was. But again, I mean, she should be savvy enough, A, yeah. to have sort of seen where it was coming from. And B, if Bernie Sanders is raising your, his hand, you probably, and he's the only other one doing it, you probably don't want to join him. But the, but the assumption was, and the reason that people didn't jump in on it, with the assumption, and, and this appears to have been the intention of the moderators, was to frame it as, if we have Medicare for all, right. uh, what, should we abolish private insurance? That is just really stupid. That's right. an, I mean, and it reveals, you know, respectfully, and by that I mean not respectfully at all, it reveals the stupidity, and, and there's no other word for it, the stupidity of the anchor, of the, of the moderators and the people who design those questions, because there is not Medicare, what we would call Medicare for all, uh, either whether it's a single-payer system uh, or, you know, or a government-run healthcare, a government health insurance like the NHS, a government healthcare system like the NHS, does not preclude the existence of private health insurance. Right. Britain has a centralized health service, the NHS, famously. It also has private health insurance. There is nothing that says if you have either government insurance or government health care that you can't have private insurance. That is just not a that that is that those that is a choice that America would somehow be obliged to make is a figment of these people's imagination that they yeah. chose to ask it in the stage like this. And it also it, it speaks directly to a Republican critique. Yeah, and it is it is playing directly into the hands of Republicans and deliberately being dumber than necessary in order to make some sort of like I don't even know what appeal they were like. Were they going for a gotcha question? Like, so to yeah. my mind, this is largely on the moderators. Yeah. Um, but also, but Harris has been back and forth on on her position on Medicare and she's on Medicare for all, and she's going to have to pick a side um, on this one. And either honestly, like picking like the, the political liability for picking Medicare for all, pretty modest at this point, uh, and the upside quite strong. Uh, so, you know, that's, there are all kinds of positions, but she's going to have, there are all kinds, there's a range of positions on this thing, but she's going to have to take one. Delaney took one. And I want, and again, this is the line that Politico picked up on that I want to be, that I want us to know about and stomp on. Uh, Delaney picked up on it. He said, I've talked to a bunch of hospital execs and administrators. And they said, if they, and I asked him, if you had to charge Medicare rates uh, for everything, what would happen? And they all said, we'd go out of business. And hospitals, when they bill out a service, they bill at one rate for Medicare, they bill at another rate for private insurance. The Medicare rate is lower than the private insurance rate. It's negotiated by the government. The government has a sense of the value. The private insurance rate, which they also pass on to individual consumers who don't have private insurance or whose insurance doesn't apply, is how you get things like, and I'm not making this up, $5,700 for a bandage and an ice pack for a woman who visited an emergency room, I think in North Carolina. Yeah, uh, maybe in New Jersey, the, the, you know the the famous seventy five dollar bag of ice. Mm. But all of this, like like the insurance rate, is ludicrously, cartoonishly uh, inflated, uh, and that is because our the, the present system is, I mean, it's fucked up beyond repair, right? Like this is, and well, then it's based uh, on it's based on in, uh, health insurance, not health care. Yes, that this is exactly right. Like the system is designed. 
the central organizing position of the present healthcare of, of the American healthcare system is designed around is designed around providing a lot of services and charging a great deal to insurance companies for them, mm-hmm. and then the insurance companies then pass the costs on to their consumers, and on and on we go until people can't afford their health insurance and they're ruined. Like the print, so the idea that well we can't have Medicare for all. Um, because it will drive uh, hospitals and healthcare providers out of business, and instead we must therefore uh, per- therefore support a system that charges fifty seven hundred dollars for a bandage and an ice pack and produces medical re- debt related bankruptcy as if that were its purpose uh, is the kind of mealy mouth bullshit that got the dem- that led the Democratic Party to the sorry pass in the first place. And my final point on this before I have a rage stroke is <laughs> countries that have a med- what again what we're calling Medicare for all for others would call single payer or an NHS. It's not like they don't have hospitals. It's right. not like they don't have doctors. Those countries get better those people get better care and they do it at a much lower cost. Delaney's argument is we should punch ourselves in the dick for no reason other than that we're afraid to stop punching ourselves in the dick. It was a goddamn disgrace, and at that point forward, with the, with, the, with the imprimatur of the Democratic National Committee, provides matter for extremely grave reflection. Yep. Yep. But, uh, you know, we want to close this out. We don't want to keep people along for, for, for too long, but uh, we do want to touch on a couple of other things that happened over the last week um, as sort of the wrap up. Uh, one is Jared Kushner's uh, fantasy uh, economic peace plan uh, that took place in Bahrain this week. was a uh, huge success. Massive. Peace has descended peace upon is, the world. Yeah, I don't know if you all noticed, but we're all more peaceful. Yeah. Uh, and if you didn't hear anything about it, that's because the White House drastically downplayed this thing after they realized it was going to be a disaster. Um, the second thing is Donald Trump at the G20. Um, laughing with uh, Vladimir Putin about uh, election interference. And then, the, and then the third thing is his made-for-TV moment of uh, walking into North Korea today with uh, Kim Jong-un. And uh, I, I would just continue to remind people that as you saw 20 Democrats sniping at each other, uh, relatively peacefully, I would say, um, during these debates, uh, there is a bigger issue at stake here. And as I have said multiple times on this podcast, uh, the analogy I, I, I like to use is the house is on fire. Your kid and your dog are upstairs and you're standing in the kitchen fighting about which stemware to, stay, to save. Uh, there's a bigger issue. And if this debate is just going to help us get a little more clarity on who those couple people who could potentially beat Donald Trump are, fine. But if there's going to be another one of these cattle call, there is another one of these clown cart pileups in a couple weeks. Um, just keep in mind that there's a bigger issue here and it doesn't have to do with Joe Biden's, you know, 35 year old record. It doesn't have to do with uh, Kamala Harris's decision to raise her hand or not raise her hand. It certainly doesn't have to do with Beto speaking really bad Spanish or Cory Booker then mimicking him and speaking even worse Spanish. And it definitely doesn't have anything to do with Marianne Williamson being a lunatic or Andrew Yang not wearing a tie. Um, so yeah, um, that's all, that's all fair. Excelsior. Excelsior. There's a bigger, yeah, there's a bigger world out there. Uh, I, I've, I think you're, I, I think you're right in the sense that it's worth reminding ourselves exactly what the stakes are around here. Uh, it's also just, you know, while we're on the subject of things that things seen and unseen, uh, it's also worth pointing out that the debates, even they are not a predictor of what's going to happen. And also there are things that happen immediately after the debates that are not quite as public um, that reveal a very different story. So, I mean, mm-hmm. my view, your view is that Beto had a really bad debate. He also raised $6.1 million immediately after the debate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this, 
take the debates with a grain of salt and also keep be you know continue to be aware of what the hell is happening. This is a good this is a good reminder for Democrat for for particularly people who think a lot about Democratic Party politics who can get so wrapped up in our own internal stuff that we tend to tend to you know miss the fact that there's been a major week there's been a big week of uh, of international developments, most of which have not been great. Yeah. All right. So with that, the last thing I'll mention about the debates is uh, Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, um, who I am a fan of, uh, admittedly, um, did not make the debate stage because he didn't have the right polling number in the right one of the polls. It's a little unclear exactly how his team screwed it up and how the DNC may or may not have screwed him. Anyway, speaking of useful voices on the stage, I think he could have been one. Uh, But his team put together quite the coup on having this exclusive thing on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, where they put 10 Steve Bullock's up against each other and they debated each other for like three minutes. It was a brilliant little bit. We put it up on Twitter a couple, a couple weeks uh, earlier in the week. We'll put it in the show notes. It's very worthwhile watching. And it's a real um, compliment to his, his campaign team for putting something like that together, given that, you know, he should just be gone by this point for not making that debate. Um, All right. With that, we're going to keep this short. Uh, Thank you for listening. Please do subscribe, rate us, uh, follow Frank at Frank Spring, Maggie at Maggie M012. Follow all of us at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in uh, uh, psychedelics, which probably oh, yeah. take that before the next Democratic debate. Um, and with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? Friends, surprisingly, we are headed to Oak Ridge National Laboratory in eastern Tennessee, where physicist Leah Broussard is trying to open a portal to a parallel universe. That's right. I'm not making this up. This physicist has an experiment which she believes will open, uh, will allow us to see a potential mirror universe, uh, assuming that it exists. This mirror universe would exist apparently, uh, potentially, exactly uh, next to our own. Uh, has its own laws of physics, its own history, its own mirror atoms and mirror rocks. May have its own matter as well. Uh, it's wild. Uh, so I have—I honestly can barely get my head around this. But here is my question: uh, To quote Dick Cheney and, and about the Large Hadron Collider, I am not making this up. What is the potential for the weaponization of this project? And follow-up: Can we use it against the sea? Good questions all, and certainly raises the question of what dumbest timeline America looks like in this parallel universe. Uh, Thanks, everybody. Uh, We'll talk to you later. Bye.